to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. On this episode, I went to the Andy Warhol Museum to meet up with Jose Carlos Diaz, the chief curator there. We used the office meeting rooms late one summer day, just as the sun began to fall towards the horizon line. Prior to the Warhol, Jose was a curator of exhibitions at the Bass Museum of Art in Miami Beach, where he helped program shows with artists such as Rachel Harrison and El Anatsui. Before the Bass Museum, he worked at Tate Liverpool and on the Liverpool Biennale. Jose received an MA in Cultural History from the University of Liverpool and a BA in Art History from San Francisco State University. In 2016, Jose was listed as one of the 20 most influential young curators in the U.S. by Artsy. Jose first saw me in the first week of his working at the Warhol. I happened to be giving a talk at the museum with Jessica Beck, also a curator at the Warhol. Jose and I connected shortly after over some tacos, and we've been hanging out ever since. Jose's constant hustling never ceases to amaze me, and I'm surprised he somehow makes the time to hang out with little Omi. As you can imagine, I was quite excited to chat with Jose. Our conversation touches upon Jose's meandering path to becoming a curator diversity in the curatorial museum world, and the differences between Miami and Pittsburgh. In any case, I hope you enjoy this. It's Lord of Luck of the Draw. It's Lord of Luck of the Draw. Mm. You know? Let's pick white artists and not pick the artists of color. Hmm. Yeah, well, <laughs> sto- story of my life, right? Or mm. everyone's lives. Well, say. that's changing, you know. Yeah. I, think that's, I, I do think that's changing. I think there's a big <laughs> shift with curators in the work in you know yeah. curators there's been a big well that new york times big, article came out yeah i think that was like i i've been referencing that that's a huge shift like yeah. it's like it's like people who have don't have a history of having these professions are now all of a sudden like you have a whole generation of like from rujeko to larry osai to um Achille, Tomaselli, franklin whatever it's like it's big i think it's a big deal yeah, yeah. and it's just if it's that one article that like Naomi Beckwith's in it. Like, these are all players. Yeah, yeah. And none of them are, like, over 50 years old. <laughs> so they're not even your Klauses. They're not your... And like, neither are you. So you're you're in that crowd. Oh, no, I feel, yeah, well, that's why I feel it. And also, like, Achille Tomaselli was, like, he's an, he was an assistant curator. Now he's a real curator. And then Hallie Ringel from the Studio Museum. She's white, but she's uh, she was at the Studio Museum for four years. She just got hired at the Birmingham Museum this week. Alabama, Birmingham. Yeah. Okay. But she's going from assistant curator to curator. Mm. So I was like, well, like now these young, now it's the next, like, they're obviously, they're like 10, 15 years younger than me, but they're like, now there's a whole shift happening, which with my generation, we've all shifted from curatorial assistants, assistant curators to curator. Now it's like, oh, now I'm seeing like people who work at the studio museum or wherever, like now they're shifting up, but they're all like, right. It's, it's it's a good thing, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it's I think it's exciting. I mean, it's important. I mean, I think it also good. speaks to how much work you need to do. Yeah, to and do the, that. these the curators are going to change the what's being shown, what's being collected. Like, mm-hmm. you know, 
anyway, so yeah, I think it's good. So anyway, so you've been doing all these interviews. Am I yeah. Am I one of your last ones? You're, yeah, I've been waiting for this for I know, a while. I know, I've been super slim, but... No, 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 it's, I mean, I, it's, uh, I've been recently watching Jane the Virgin, which I know you... Which one? Jane the Virgin, which I know you're not the biggest oh. fan of. But that show's been great in the sense that, like, so at the point that I'm watching, Jane has had the baby and is trying to go to grad school and... She's like falling asleep in grad school and then she's also falling behind on getting oh, to know her baby. And then she's also got two men who's like both vying for her attention. The millionaire one. The millionaire one and then the cop, the white the white oh. dude, Michael. And then, you know, she's you know, she's like, I don't have the mental capacity to like think about a relationship or like I'm and I'm failing at school and I'm like not being good mother, uh, not being a good mother, you know, and just sort of um it's just a reminder that people have lives and yeah. it's difficult. And yeah. so the best that you can do is just reach out and be accommodating and yeah. do the best. And it's a favorite, right? You're, yeah. you're, you're taking time off to talk to oh. me. So she hasn't picked the guy yet? Uh, where I'm at, she did. And then Michael got angry and started a fight with Raphael. And then a piece of glass hurt the baby. Whoa. So she, Jane got upset at Michael. Oh my God. And... <laughs> So then that, yeah. So. That's funny. <laughs> I just think like the, the reels. And I think Netflix has them. Netflix or Hulu has like a an Espanol section. Version of it? No, not that show, but just like... Just telling the Spanish, Spanish soaps. Yeah. But I guess from growing up and watching them, there's like, you don't question the cheesiness, I guess. Yeah. But since they're sort of, it's sort of a, a it's sort of been transported and now it's like a hybrid because it's like a lot of them are filmed in Miami and like... yeah. They're shown in other countries, and you almost take at least watching the original soap opera. You took, even though they're cheesy, you're like you took a lot of those storylines to heart. And yeah, but now yeah. I think yeah, through like the decades now, there's like a lot of tropes and like yeah, yeah. cliched narratives. Yeah, and, yeah. But I mean, I think I was told I haven't watched enough love telenovelas, but I was told Jane is also unique because it fully takes the viewpoint of a woman. Oh, I never thought of that. Right, like especially for the entire first season. Like, it's all from Jane's perspective. Oh, yeah. Right? Okay. It's like, and all the men are all actually kind of sucky, right? Like, yeah. Michael Michael yeah. dumps her or doesn't want her to have a baby, which is her choice. That's true. Raphael's just a playboy. You don't know him yet. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's all women in her life. It's her mom, yeah. her grandma. Now, now that I think of it, um, Ugly Betty was based off the Spanish uh-huh. version. It was called Betty, yeah. Betty Lafayette. Uh-huh. And that was wildly popular. And of course, it's it's a beautiful woman who plays like ugly with glasses and yeah, buck yeah. teeth, and she becomes this beautiful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're right, because yeah, Ugly Betty had become a hit, but it was remade in America. But it really was through her as this protagonist, and she's empowered. And yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I watched all the scandalous ones as kids with my mom. <laughs> um, anyway, so you ready to start? Yeah, so what are the what are the rules? What are we doing? Are the, re- the rules, so the rules are sort of, there are no rules. How long do they usually run for? They've been running anywhere from 40 minutes to an hour and a half. And so it depends on... I, thought, I think 40 minutes to an hour is good. Okay, all right, we can... All right, and uh, I, only listen, I only listen to like podcasts that are like 20 minutes. <laughs> I know, I mean, the, the issue that I've had is I like the podcasts that are longer, but Justin showed me his, his stats and like mm-hmm. how many listens he gets with different people. And he said the 20, 30 minute ones always get more listens. Mm, but less, it asks for less. But I also think the conversations are more interesting if they're allowed yeah, to go longer. Yeah. So it's sort of like a push and pull, yeah. you know? Okay, I'm good. You're good? Yeah. 
All right, I'm right now speaking with Jose Diaz, the chief curator at the Annie Warhol Museum, and I'm really excited to talk to you. Hi, hi Zewan, thanks for having me. I guess let's start off with where you grew up, what was it like, how, how did art enter your life? Um, yeah, where did I grow up? How did it all start? Um, yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Those are easy, easy questions. Yeah, it's, I don't get asked that very often, but um, yeah, so my family is originally from Mexico, and so I was born in Miami, Florida. And long story short, my parents are both in the same town in Mexico. They're from um, which town? It's called Jerez, which oh. is in Zacatecas, uh, Mexico. It's like north central Mexico. Uh-huh. And so, as a teenager, my mother moved to Northern California with her family. And as a teenager, my father moved to Miami, Florida with his family. Other sides of country. Exactly. And so, um, and my father's um, eldest sister married a Cuban man. And so my father grew up in sort of the, the Cuban district or Cuban city, yeah. well, Cuban populated area of Miami called Hialeah. Mm-hmm. And so my parents met in the same town that they were from. And so uh, they got married uh, and then they had my brother and I, cause I'm a twin yeah. They had us in uh, Miami, Florida. And so I was uh, raised in Miami until I was about five with my brother. And then we had resettled back into Northern California, um, specifically a, a city called Stockton, California. And we would go back for the summers to Miami. And it wasn't until years later that I, I moved back when I was 18. But yeah, as a, as a, as a child in Stockton, California, my brother and I were very... Um, creative we were encouraged to do lots of activities we did you know i think we did like softball or baseball we did my brother was like he did like bmx racing really i did like we did soccer and um yeah we also did all art classes my mother my mother today is a photographer and she was also when you were growing up no no my parents were laborers my parents my my goodness my parents my mother went to college like way into her adulthood <laughs> and my parents I used to work the fields in California. They were, uh-huh. um, they were, you know, migrant workers and my father's a laborer. Now he's, he owns his own business and he's, he has a air conditioning business, yeah. um, air conditioning, heating, but yeah, my parents, yeah, they struggled. So we were, you know, we didn't grow up very wealthy, but my parents wanted my brother and I to have, you know, a good, a good life. So we, we went to Catholic schools yeah, yeah. Uh, growing up. And yeah, my father, I don't think my father ever went beyond high school in terms of his education. Um, so yeah, so I guess the the investment was really for my brother and I to find sort of our, our interests, our pathways. That's great. Because usually, usually the story is that as children of immigrants, this idea to succeed and how art and those interests are dead ends in terms of helping you as, a, mm-hmm. as an adult, uh, financially at least, make it. Yeah. And as we, as we grew older, you know, in high school, my brother was in like the school band and he had a rock band. He's a musician today as yeah, so well. Lucky Diaz and the family jam band. That's right. So my brother does uh, kindy rock, uh, like bilingual music. And, um, but yeah, growing up, we went, we took art classes and that was one of the sort of outlets that we both had access to. We would take like classes after school. This was something that was paid for. And, you know, one of the cool things back then was to take like airbrushing classes and, I really, I really admired, you know, taking those classes. It was sort of an extracurricular thing to do. And I was involved in um, maybe like plays and things in high school and helping. You did plays? What plays? Oh my God. What did I do? I did like a summer production of, of hair. Really? <laughs> it was like in the, in the, uh, I was like an extra. Um, but yeah, I was super creative and quirky and weird. 
And, um, but yeah, my parents really wanted us to sort of, um, see what was out in the world. And so even in high school, I think it was like the senior trip or junior trip. We, our high school did, uh, St. Mary's high school used to do a, a European trip. You'd go for two weeks and go to the different countries in Europe, like German did school paid for this. No, no, no. Each family had to pay for their child to go, but you know, the groups were about 20 to 30 people and we'd go to, we went to Europe. And so my brother and I went on this European trip and my parents themselves, it was, it was decades later, well into their adulthood. Well, you know, not right, until right. not too long ago that they actually went to Europe, but yeah, we went to Europe as 15 year olds, 16 year olds, you know, and we had only known like Mexico and, and the U S. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my parents really were big on exposing us to the world and there was never, I don't think there was ever any pressure to be a doctor or a lawyer or an artist or a musician, but we definitely had to go to college. Like that was not an option. We were going to go to college. Right, right. Um, and so, yeah, so growing up, I wasn't until when I graduated high school that I, um, I applied to many colleges and I got accepted, uh, and well, I accepted, um, an invitation to go to university of Miami in Florida. So I moved back to Miami in, in my goodness, 1996, I guess I want to say. And I always ha have felt, you know, very grounded towards, Miami and South Florida culture, but I had gone to Miami to study international business mm -hmm. and my parents are also Catholic. So, you know, we grew up very strict and so I didn't grow up going to parties or doing anything oh, really? naughty. <laughs> and so I totally was a wild child mm -hmm. Got it out. <laughs> as a freshman at the university of Miami in 96 and, uh, st yeah, studied international business, totally flunked. You flunked? Yeah. I d didn't know a thing about business and, uh, and I moved back. Yeah, I, I, I basically dropped out, moved back to California, and then ended up trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and the arts, I don't think really were an option at the time because I didn't, I personally didn't, I, I knew I was artistic, but I knew uh, a painter, for example, doesn't doesn't necessarily make a, a lucrative income unless they're like Picasso or, you know, um, yeah, whatever, whoever you happen to know about. Right? Yeah, at the time. And so, um, yeah, so I guess that wasn't really an option for me, but I guess taking a break and pausing, going back to school um, in California just to do my like prerequisites really made me understand that I did want to um, study art. And I, I guess at the time, I guess, you know, education has shifted, but I, I um, applied to go to San Francisco State University which was not too far from Stockton, but I knew I want, I didn't want to stay in Stockton. Okay. And I went to take their like art history uh, program, like a bachelor's in art history. What made you decide to, did you know that you just sort of took a few classes and you're like, Oh, I like this thing. Yeah. I've always liked, you know, I've always um, liked art as a child. I would, we lived across the street from a park that had a museum. Yeah. The museum was encyclopedic as it could be. It had a mummy. Yeah. Yeah. It had a, a reproduction or it had like a, a sort of a, a mock ghost town of old Stockton with the railroads and, yeah, the, yeah. and the general store. And it had, um, didn't have a contemporary collection. I had like tractors and all sorts of, you know, weird things, but, um, it had free admission. So I always would find myself in that museum. And, and so when I s decided to, um, look into art history, I thought, and I still think it's very vague, but when one studies art history, you don't really know what to do with it. But I thought it was vague enough that you could decide, Oh, maybe you, you, decide to be a painter, a teacher, mm. you know, do art therapy, run a gallery, right. um, work in a museum. So it's kind of like being a philosophy major, right? Yeah. It's kind it's of like, it's about thinking and through that thinking, you can kind of do a lot of other things. Yeah. So when I did the program, which I loved, I did it at, um, at San Francisco state, I took, you know, 
I took studio classes. I was doing textiles. I was oh, doing wow. drawing. Um, but I was also taking like art education. I was taking like, uh, I took like a queer art, queer art history class. Um, so yeah, I was really branching out. I was also a, a TA for, for I think two, two semesters. I worked in the slide library. Right. So I had plenty of access and also, you know, this is, you know, I'm probably in my early 18, maybe 20, 21 years old. I also have access to San Francisco cause I'm living there. And, right. and, um, at the time I was working part-time at urban outfitters, the clothing store. And I also work part-time at SF MoMA, you know, selling tickets and working customer service. Wow. But this, but because of this, I was basically in the heart of San Francisco and had access to all the museums right. and institutions. And, you know, even working at SF MoMA, you, you, I guess that's an early sense of institutions and their departments and such, but right. I don't think I knew I wanted to be a curator yet. It still wasn't quite there yet. So I think it wasn't until a few years ago that I even sort of understood what a curator was, to be honest, as an artist. You know, yeah, it's it's an interesting sort of idea to even think about, like wanting to be a curator. Yeah, and I think why well, I think there's too many curators nowadays. Oh, I mean, really? Well, you see, like you see, like um, I don't know, music festivals are curated and dinners mm. are curated, and weddings like, are curated. Yeah, so I think the maybe the word is a little abused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's really about you know, caring for a collection, working in an institution, and I think making choices to advocate the arts. Yeah, it's something that I, I enjoyed doing when I finished San Francisco State University. This was like before Y2K or, yeah, this must have been like, oh, Y2K happened and then 9-11 took place. Mm. And um, and you had just, you graduated then in like 2000? 2000, yeah. Right. I graduated, but I stuck around San Francisco for a little while, a few months, I think. But when I graduated... I decided to move back to Florida, back to Miami. There was, you know, I, I found that a lot of artists in San Francisco were starving and suffering. There wasn't really a, there was galleries, but I didn't quite understand the complexities of the art world. So I decided to move back to Miami the day before 9-11, actually. And really? So, yeah. So, so, so nine t- September 10th, 2001. Yeah. And so, yeah, the next morning I woke up and I was actually scheduled to go to go to work. I had transferred to Urban Outfitters in South Beach, you <laughs> okay. know, just because I needed a job, but the, yeah. the place was locked up and, you know, the streets were quiet. And, um, and it was then when I started to question like, you know, oh my God, what did I do? I studied such a frivolous, you know, yeah. major. I don't know what to do with this. The world is in this really dark place. And, um, I guess I was a little bit down on myself and, uh, I didn't think, uh, there would be a career path in the arts or art history or curating. A queer path you said? Or a, cl- a clear, clear, clear oh, okay, path, yeah. okay. a clear or both. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then I, um, that same year, I actually applied for a curatorial internship at um, the Rubel Family Collection. Okay. The Rubels have a, it's a private collection with a, but it's a public building, and they have a major collection. They started collecting anything in the eighties. It's a beautiful building. Yeah. And they just moved. Yeah. And I think right. they're moving or they are moving. I think they're in the same place, but they're moving to another space. Right. Or expanding. And when I, when I was there in Miami. Yeah. I think you're right. Them, they told me that they're planning to move. Yeah. And so they have a, they have an amazing collection. They used to buy, well, they've bought some of the most important artists for several decades. And so what was great about that experience, it really was, I think the beginning of my, of my career, of my interest in curating. Um, I did this curator internship. It was unpaid full-time three months hardcore and it's sort of a cycle you'd be paired with two other two other interns but they were from other parts of the world so the other the other two individuals in my season one was from south africa and the other one was from um the british museum or she's now at the british museum but she was based i think in paris 
And um, so as we enter the, the previous season, interns had just finished and, you know, interns would apply for this, this role. And one of the, one of the crucial elements of this internship was that you had to have one project. You could pick what it was, but just do it. Whether it was digitizing a certain body of the collection. Mm-hmm. One of my peers, she was a conservationist. So she did conservation work on all the Keith Haring prints mm. as her project there. I had decided to curate a, a show for, for the artist, Jenny Holzer. Mm. You know, I, I, I knew who she was. She's in the history books. She's certainly um, important today. And so, yeah, so I got to select works in the collection. I, I was talking to the studio. We installed actually um, the whole series of inflammatory essays and the truisms throughout the, inside the building. So this is your first time curating then? Yeah, right. it was sort of a way to, you know, problem solve and negotiate. You know, we had Jenny Holzer had an idea to put the inflammatory essays pasted on the, you know, in the streets of Wynwood, which Wynwood now is very glamorous. and It's a huge tourist spot. Yeah, it's touristy. It's known for its graffiti. It's um, nightlife. Yeah, there's nightlife, there's food. But back then, Wynwood was sort of this wasteland and not um, not very pretty. But at the time, we felt there would be backlash in the neighborhood because of some of the language in the, on the inflammatory essay. So we had proposed putting truisms up mm. in South Beach on Lincoln Road. And um, that was the city declined the project and cost wasn't going to cost them anything. So they yeah, declined so, it. They yeah. Oh, yeah. No, okay. They said, oh, we know who she is, but, you know, we, we get good money for the spaces where you want to put these truisms, put advertising. Mm. I thought it would have been a major public, you know, public artwork for Jenny Holt to have the, all the truisms throughout Lincoln Road. It's like a mile long. But anyways, in conjunction with the exhibition, we also was, were pl- I was planning a talk, a dinner, a tour. Um, Just everything. Everything. So this internship was really interesting because you learned everything from writing the press release to giving a public talk to organizing the dinner to, you know, picking her up from the airport to buying the flight. So she difficult to work with. No, she was great. Okay. It was a great experience. You know, the, the stereotype that artists are difficult to work with and having met so many artists, I can oh, yeah. attest to that. Yeah. Well, since then I've worked with some monsters, but, <laughs> um, I've, since I've gotten older, I only work with, you know, artists I have chemistry with. But, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. No, Jenny Holzer was great and it was a good experience. And, Immediately after that, I, I had an apartment not too far from the Wynwood Arts District in, in an area called Edgewater, which is off Biscayne Boulevard. And I ran a space called Wormhole Laboratory. And um, taking all that experience, and I was work, still working at Urban Outfitters, you know, and I was... This entire time you're working at Urban Outfitters? Urban Outfitters, and I also worked, actually, I worked part-time as a, as a, as a gallery teacher at the Miami Art Museum, which oh, is nice. today known as the Perez Art Museum. Oh, okay. So yeah, so I, I had started off as a volunteer at the Miami Art Museum, which is then located downtown. And so I worked part-time there as the, yeah, the gallery teacher and did tours and worked with kids. Did you get any sleep? That's like two volunteer and, uh, yeah. and, and working. Oh yeah. But when you're young, you're, you can sort of bounce, yeah. bounce around. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, and I think for my free time, I, I wanted to dedicate it to this space Yeah. that I called Wormhole Laboratory, which is my apartment. My apartment was empty. It was broke. So there was no, not much furniture. Where'd you get the name wormhole? Wormhole lab came from, um, it came from the concept of like a wormhole, like traveling from one place to another, mm-hmm. like more of the, like the scientific sort of connotations it has. And then laboratory, I think I was reading, um, 
Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Okay. And I, I still re- haven't read that. No, it's good. It's a I, short, I, it's I a, know about it. It's a short read. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and, um, you know, this laboratory where you're creating this man. And also, I think I must have read, a, it must have been a Hans Ulrich article, but the word laboratory just kind of like rung with me like, oh, that makes for an interesting space. It's not a, it's not a gallery. It's not a museum. It's not an artist studio. What is it? And so I decided to combine those words like wormhole laboratory. So it can be this nomadic curatorial platform forum. Nothing's, nothing's for sale. No one, there's nobody on the payroll. It's just sort of a space that exists. And then let's see where, (laughs) what it evolves into. And so that was sort of the take on the first wormhole laboratory and exhibition, which was called Haunted, and it was based off the apartments, you know, being haunted, being haunted. Yeah. And, Do you believe in ghosts? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, did you feel a ghostly presence in your apartment? No, I didn't. But um, but I've I've lived in haunted houses okay. before. <laughs> um, but I yeah, a lot of my early curatorial practice dealt with like metaphysics mm. and the spiritual world. One, you know, I did a, the show after Haunted was called um, Making Up Carolyn, and that's was. A lot of buildings in South Beach or also in other cities sometimes have names, you know, so you personify these buildings. Mm. And so I did research at the at the Florida History Museum and went through archives, like trying to find out, like, why would someone name this building Carolyn and tracking down who had lived in the apartment in the past? Because the building the building had survived a hurricane from 19. Oh, from the 1930s. I think it, it had been the strongest hurricane yeah. prior to Hurricane Andrew. And this building had survived. So the artist in that show, Shane Seltzer, she and I were investigating who was Carolyn. How do you personify Mm -hmm. someone that maybe never existed? And maybe the building itself is the only Carolyn that's existed. And then the show after that was called A Gypsy's Curse. And it was based off a curse Mm -hmm. um, that someone had put on me. And sort of was my reaction to that curse. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but it's true. So, and so where, um, where'd you find these artists? Were they all emerging artists? Were these artists through the Rubel collection? How do they, how also, how do these artists view you as a young curator? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, this is parallel to the art Basel Miami beach mm. fair. You know, we, all, most of us in the art world know what it is. It's in Switzerland in the summer. It's in Miami in the uh, winter. Still haven't been to it. Really? No. Oh, I, I'm shocked. I know. Okay, well, I just haven't had a chance. Oh, well, we've been to Florida though. So, I've been yeah, to Florida in the opposite yeah. Yeah. in the uh, in the summer, so oh, the that's opposite right. time. Oh, that's right. Well, you know, the Art Basel. Yeah. So now that I'm thinking back, the first Art Basel was supposed to happen in 2001. Mm-hmm. That called the whole thing off because of 9/11. Because of 9/11, and you know, a lot of artists and Miami is still known for its you know art scene. There's a ton of artists there, tons of emerging artists. And in 2001, people decided, let's still go on with our projects. And I remember the museum still had openings or at least modest ones. You know, this is September, October, November, December. You, yeah. So this is a very soon. I remember the, I think the Miami Art Museum when I was there, I think they postponed or canceled their party. Mm. It was an exhibition that was really inspirational to me. It was an exhibition called Ultra Baroque mm. and it came from SF MoMA. But yeah, a lot of a lot of local artists still did things, but this is not on the scale of like the Art Basel of today with like, you know, champagne parties and, you know, major sponsors and, yeah. you know, levels of VIP. Yeah. BM, uh, BMW, like cars that you can paint on. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So Miami's always had this, Miami has always had this like thriving arts community and it still exists because you can see today that you have Art Basel, Miami Beach, but then you have like 
15 other satellite fairs. Right. You have like dozens of buildings with artist studios. You have residencies. You titles have, and different shows. Exactly. And then you yeah. have a community locally to support it, but then you get the influx of all the tourists coming in. So in the early, in the early days, you know, they're, they're actually, the artists were always there. I, I think there was, there was always curators, of course, and I think they were maybe linked to the institutions. But now that, now that I think about it, a lot of the independent curators were around. A lot of them were makers, you know, they were doers, you know, in Miami, I find a, a lot of makers and artists and curators that were all very resourceful. We all, we all, um, contribute to make things happen, whether it's, you know, promoting something or trying to fundraise together. But yeah, I think, I think when I first started, I wouldn't have succeeded had I not met individuals who were, who were just as um, excited to try something new. Um, a lot of the artists I worked with, they all have, almost all of them have really great careers now. Um, many of them are still friends, but it's nice to have grown with, you know, friends and peers that are, that also, you know, this was the beginning for their career. But I think, I, I do think the rise of the, public institutions in Miami, the private museums, and then the art, the art fair structure right. sort of has elevated all of Miami's sort of community, even from 20 years ago to today. So I guess going back to the wormhole, these artists that you found, they were all originally going to be partaking in Art Basel, the first one? Oh, no, I would, um, I would travel with my own money and go to like, I went to like New Orleans, I did some studio visits. I would, um, I would see an artist's website and email them. I mean, yeah. this is before like Facebook and stuff. Yeah. I would go to an, I would go to like a gallery opening or a college or a, um, a university like graduate exhibition, grad school, grad thesis. school exhibition, grab the postcard and reach out to them. This yeah. is very, you know, I, I often said, you know, I don't have any money, you know, we have the FedEx and I'll pay one way of shipping. Yeah. Maybe you come and stay in my place and build something and we tear it apart. Yeah. It really was about negotiating. But yeah, no, these were all artists that were, these weren't the the Jeff Koons or Takashi yeah. Murakamis of, of the, the period. Um, no, I, I think it was all just through knowing people th- graduating from college or just people who, from other communities. I think a lot of the, my wormhole, at some point, I think I'd shown over a hundred artists. Really? In wormhole. From Miami artists to artists I met through, you know, friends of friends and you know, people would send you their portfolios and such, but I did, I did it on on a very modest scale. Right. This is also pre Instagram, pre like oh, yeah. internet, like real internet boom. Yeah. And I think there was, and this model exists, other people before me and to this day have like a, a galleries in their apartment yeah. and stuff, but yeah, certainly more tools. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of incredible. Like what would have been possible back then if we had sort of the technology today, but but yeah, even back then I would hire a professional photographer to document the show because that was really important. We would produce a, a postcard or a poster and all the artists would chip in. You know, this was a city known for its nightlife, so postcards were cheap. Right. Didn't you learn how to write grants while running this or this was all out of pocket? It was all out of pocket or in kind. I never, um, yeah, I never got into grant writing or mm. I think more, maybe more development, like mm. getting someone to sponsor it or write it off. Right, right, right. Um, but a lot of it was self-funded, yeah. And and I knew from that experience of doing Wormhole, I definitely didn't. I ended up at some point working for a commercial gallery, but I I, I already felt in my my heart that I didn't want to be like a gallerist, yeah, or at least have a space where I was dependent on trying to sell the work because or managing all these people, yeah. Because with the Wormhole Lab model, like I I wasn't trying to be a gallerist. Anybody who sold something would keep the proceeds, or I had them negotiate their own sales with whoever wanted it. Right. I didn't even take a percentage. It was really for promotion but of course at that time the 
the, the, the money needed to make something like an exhibition was like a hundred bucks, you know? Yeah. And so it was on very low, modest scale. So from wormhole, wormhole and the rebel collection, where'd you go from there? I'm trying to think, you know, I think I went back to, um, oh, you know, I went back, I went back to the Miami art museum. I went from a teacher educator to then I became a communications assistant. So I worked in communications and marketing for, I think two years. I was in the education department as an assistant. And then I, I went and I became a, then a communications and marketing assistant. And that was good. Cause then I learned PR. I learned how to like do a press release, even more polished. Yeah. I started to think more about the audience as opposed to just thinking about myself and working with an artist and the Miami art museum at the time was preparing to break ground into their new space. There was a transition of directors as well. So I had left when Suzanne Delahanty had left. And then I think, I think Terry Riley became director and then Tom Collins, and then Franklin sermons. Yeah. I think I was at the Miami art museum for two years. I, I really loved it. Um, I always, admired what the curators were doing. We'd have guests visiting like Wengechi Mutu or um, Shazia Sikander or like uh, Jack Lerner. But we always got to meet all the artists uh, because it's such a small museum. And um, so, Oh, you mean it was? Because now when I look, when I went there, it felt like a huge museum. Oh, well, now the museum is a beautiful. Yeah. It's it's the it's the museum you go to if you right. visit Miami. It's like, it's like the MoMA of Miami, it feels like. Yeah, on a smaller scale than MoMA. But yeah, it's got a... It's got a great vibe to it. And uh, yeah, these were the early days of the downtown location of the Miami mm. Art Museum. But yeah, I, I had aspirations for working in curatorial. I had interviewed. In fact, now I remember when I finished the Rubal collection, I had talked to the chief curator at the Miami Art Museum telling him like, I just finished this. I want to work in curatorial. It never happened. But at the time that I was at the Miami Art Museum, I had a job offer to work at a commercial gallery. Mm-hmm. This is a Diana Lowenstein Gallery. And I worked there for about, I want to say two and a half years. And this gallery was known for doing lots of art fairs. Um, it showed a lot of Latin and international artists. And this particular gallery also wanted to um, have local artists show. So I had a little project room. I got to travel with a lot of the art fairs. Um, but I think, and I enjoyed it. And it was in the Winwood. it's in the Winwood Arts District. And I was, I really enjoyed it. It was really fun. But I think the pressures of selling, the pressures of, you know, representing yourself, you know, a a business really, Mm -hmm. um, has pressures as opposed to being part of the community because I find the gallery system is so, um, cutthroat, not cutthroat, maybe competitive. Competitive. So there's less, there's less encouragement, at least from the gallery to participate in certain things. And from that, you know, I was, it was, um, challenging, but I really enjoyed it. And then I was there for about three years. And then I, and then after that, I moved to Liverpool, England. Why'd you go to Liverpool? Um, my husband is an oceanographer. And so he took a job. This is 2008. He took a job in Liverpool, England. And I just said, okay, I'll go too. And so we moved to, moved to Liverpool, England. And, um, well, that must've been a really intense transition move, right? Yeah, it was really difficult. I mean, I, I had gone with, I had gone knowing England through movies and maybe a trip to London, but I was really, I guess, shell shocked when I arrived in Liverpool. It was, it was going through a transformation in a very good one. It has a very similar industry or, you know, it has a similar history to like something like Pittsburgh. It had extreme mm-hmm. wealth, you know, had certain industries and then it went into major decline. Right. Depression for a while. Yeah. And so the city in 2008 was the European capital of culture. There was a revival going on. Mm. Liverpool um, has many museums. It was one of the wealthiest cities 
the 19th century. It had one of the largest populations in the UK. Henry Tate, who, you know, from Tate Modern, Tate Modern, Tate, Tate, right. Modern, Tate Britain. Mm-hmm. There's four Tates. So Tate Liverpool is there. And uh, when Henry Tate wanted to make a museum, Liverpool is very wealthy and had enough museums. That's where Tate Britain that's when that happened. So, um, yeah, so I, I moved to Liverpool, but I had only, well, I had realized with a bachelor's degree, that wasn't enough to really get you a, a job because uh, almost everyone I encountered in Europe, or at least in the UK, they all had master's degrees. You know, European curators, you know, they were all getting PhDs. Yeah. Euro- Europeans speak, naturally speak more than one language. So the, the field was very competitive and, um, and in Liverpool, there was a, we had the Liverpool Biennial as well, which it still goes on. But what I decided to do is go ahead and get my master's. So I went to University of Liverpool and I studied, um, I studied cultural history. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I went part time and, was, you know, was volunteering and helping. You know, I volunteered in a, a theater. I volunteered at Tate Liverpool. I volunteered at um, a space called Fact, which is a museum of sorts with uh, movie cinemas in it. Was um, getting cultural history because there wasn't a curatorial master's? That was like the closest you could. No, there was there was programs, and I think in Manchester there's also like museum studies. But you know, I've worked in museums, so I don't need I don't need to. It felt I don't need that. I mm-hmm. didn't want art history again, and I didn't want to become pigeonholed. So I um, a new program at, at, in the school of history was was cultural history, but looking at material culture mm. and looking at histories that are non-political or you know non-political well like I, like so like not cultural history in, in a in a colonial sense you mean yeah i mean we we read histories that are based off kings queens wars mm. but there's also these like niche histories or history you know the history of prostitution you know mm. the history of like wine you know the history of like yellow journalism you know so it's uh it allowed it allows for scholars to research you know, areas of our culture that have yet to be written about. And it's, you know, it's, it's quite fascinating. And I thought it was really interesting because in my own interests, you know, uh, museums tend to have things that weren't necessarily made to be in a museum, of course, like right. a garment, mm-hmm. you know, or a mummy. <laughs> and so, you know, a piece that, of paper that someone touched. Yeah. And you yeah. Know, now I'm here at the Andy Warhol Museum. Yeah. We, have, <laughs> we have the archives. We have his wigs, you know, yeah. and we've got the paintings. We've He's got, kept, he kept everything. Kept everything. We've got collaborative works and, you know, we also program heavily here. So, yeah. So I think it was really a right fit for me. And, you yeah. Know, and so, and so studying, studying cultural history, I guess, opened up my eyes and, and I was, I was definitely wanting to be a curator, you know, in an institution at this point. Right. I wanted to work at Tate Liverpool. I wanted to work at the Liverpool Biennial. And so I was applying for these jobs, you know, not just in Liverpool, but, uh, while, every, while you were in getting your master's. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. So then I started, uh, yeah. What did I, I, I got a call from, um, the Liverpool Biennial. I had interviewed several times. And I interviewed many times at Tate Liverpool, but I got a job um, being the project coordinator for a Tanya Bruguera project for the, oh. for the Liverpool Biennial. I think this is 2010. And so the idea was to bring Tanya Bruguera and 12 other Cuban artists one month at a time, or separated by like two weeks, but um, bring in up to 12 artists from Cuba to the UK mm-hmm. to reenact or re- recreate happenings based off the work of Alan Caprow. Mm. And so Liverpool at the time had very few Spanish speakers. And so, um, yeah, what was that like? Cause you, you went from Cuba 
or no, you went from Miami, which is like a huge central South American population to, I guess, smaller one, right, in London. In Liverpool. Or, or yeah. Liverpool, right? Yeah, Liverpool. It's funny because I thought, I actually thought Liverpool would be more diverse moving there. Liverpool um, was part of the transatlantic slave trade. Because of the maritime culture, there is ethnic communities that have been there since the 19th century, 18th century. It has one of the first, I think, Chinatowns in all of Europe. Really? There's a Caribbean community there. In terms of Latinos, maybe people from Spain, but not I don't think people that would identify as Latino. And so people usually thought I was um, Italian or if I said I was from Miami, they think I was Cuban with an English, with an American accent. <laughs> so they would ask if I, if I learned English from an American school teacher oh, um, with, an funny. with an assumption that I was not American. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was hard because, um, you know, there was not diversity, but I will also, um, this is 2000 after 2008 and the economy crashed, there was a lot of Spaniards moving to Liverpool hmm. And I became friends with a lot of them because they would post on like Craigslist or Facebook, like they wanted to learn English. So I did like a language hmm. exchange, just like meet. And a lot of them became my friends and I'm still friends with them, but we'd meet for coffee and I'd bring some materials I wanted to practice with. I was working on these Cuban artist statements that were very complex and they would want to work on their English. And, and so it was a great way just to meet people, but also have that sort of cultural exchange between like Spanish speaking people, even though they weren't. Americans or Latinos. So yes, I, I think, but I, I do find Liverpool to be extremely diverse, but I think as someone who had moved there, I didn't find it until much w- later. Much later. Yeah. And we were there for, I was there for five years. So um, I was happy to leave when I did. But um, with the Liverpool Biennial, it's, it's the, I think it's the only biennial in the UK. So that itself, if you look it up, it has a, it has a range of artists from all over the world that come in to install these projects. So even working with Tanya Bruguera was such a, such a treat because you someone you admire, but then you're in a, you're in a small city and you get to work directly with someone so inspirational. Right. Like Tanya and then work with artists, the other Cuban artists who had never left Cuba right. know, to come in and do a project. Sort of like the Ai Weiwei piece with Documenta, right? Where he paid, I think his piece was just to get oh, yeah, a hundred Chinese people yeah. just to come to Germany. Yeah, exactly. You know? So yeah. And then us, Which is a political act in itself. Yeah, and ours was Cubans, and I think it was a little bit lost in translation because we installed some some artworks that were like in Spanish, and I was like, I don't think anyone's gonna like know how political with you're trying to be. Spanish with no translation, with no translation. Oh, wow, yeah, that's like, hard. Like anti-Castro billboards, like oh, I don't think they're gonna resonate with the yeah. community, especially like if there's no one in the in the city to even read them or, yeah, to, or yeah. to read them in Spanish and understand. Tanya was the first Sioux visit I ever did. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. When was that? The first year of grad school. Oh, yeah. I was really nervous. Oh no, she's she's, she's nice. She's great. Yeah. She's, she's she's great. But I was just so nervous that I felt like I needed to prove myself. So I just mm. basically filled the entire time showing her my work and didn't let her talk because oh. I was nervous. Or I didn't. I didn't think I subconsciously was doing this because like I need to show her this, 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 and then the time ran out. And she's like, "Oh well, um, <laughs> you look like you're on your way." So, well, if you're listening, Tanya, we love you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still keep in touch with her, but um, but yeah, I worked for Liverpool Biennial, and um, this was a great experience. And then from there, I started applying for internships at Tate Liverpool. I applied for um, a curatorial internship, and um, I got it. It was unpaid, full time. Did it. I worked on a, it was a Charlene Von Hale painting show that I assisted one of the curators with who's not there anymore. And yeah, it was like the first time I had like 
exposure to a collection of museums since my time at the Miami Art Museum. So mm-hmm. it was really fulfilling. And then I got contracted to work there and I got, I started working on um, assisting other curators, but this led up to the 2010 Liverpool Biennial. And I got to work with a curator at, at Tate and with Doug Aitken to do one of his pavilions with those projected films. Yeah. yeah. How was that? It was amazing. I mean, he's such a, he's such a amazing artist. Yeah. And, um, it seems like his mind is just exploding with ideas. Oh, it is. And, but this is, this was a bit more controlled mm. because there's so much logistics involved. The pavilion that we built was um, designed by David Age, mm. the architect. And then the, the requirements for these projections and sound, it's so precise and expensive that um, there wasn't room for creativity once the proposal was accepted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I got to work with Doug Aitken and, you know, through, through the curators at Tate, it was such a, it was such a great experience, you know, to be, you know, to be part of the Tate family. And it's similar, I guess, to the Warhol. We're part of another, you know, the museum structure with the Carnegie museums here. Right. But it was so wonderful to work with artists on new projects that, you know, I really enjoyed that. You know, I think as a curator, I, I really love working with, you know, living artists and I love working on, projects that are maybe site specific or new mm-hmm. or customized for that, that location. And he does that. And yeah. And so, so from that, you know, it was, uh, I knew, I knew in my heart that I wanted to stay in the museum field and also eventually be a, not a curatorial assistant, but a curator, curator right. um, in the right. museum. And so my contract had ended and my husband's contract had ended as well. So 2012. So we both moved back to Miami. I had applied, I actually applied to work at the Perez Art Museum okay. and at the Bass Museum of Art. And what was once a Miami Museum, now Perez, right? Sorry, yeah, the Perez is the PAM. Right. Yeah, right. the Perez, um, which is the Miami Art Museum. So I applied for that. That was a brand new building and I had, you know, Franklin Sermons came in. And they turned you down? Well, I got the job that I applied oh. for. I applied for the job, but I asked for a title change. And they wouldn't give it to you? They would not. I wanted the word curator in it. What did um, they want to give you? It was a position for like a time-based media manager, but okay. basically I was working with artists on time-based works, performance, et cetera. Right. It was, it was, I believe it was, I believe the position doesn't no longer exist actually now that I think of it. But the same month I, I had, I, I had interviewed at the Bass Museum of Art, which is in, in Miami beach. And I interviewed for the curator of exhibitions there and I got that job nice. offer. So then I went back to, uh, the Perez. And I said, Oh, I already have a job offer, but if you just change the title to the Perez, you know, to the, the time-based media curator, yeah, even time-based media, like assistant curator, whatever, like yeah. I need the word curator and I don't even need the pay increase, but they, they said, no. Why do you yeah. think they're so against this? I don't think they were against it. I, I think they, it's just a museum that has a lot of curators. Mm. So I can see where maybe roles get blurred, like, mm-hmm. you know, especially adding, adding, adding a new curator based on my Suggestion. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, yes, yeah, so I ended up taking the job at the Bass Museum. And, you got to ask, right? Yeah. That's, that's one of the things I think it took me a while to realize is learning how to negotiate different, you know, job positions. Yeah. If you don't ask, you don't get. So, yeah. yeah so, you know, that was that was hard to do. But it was like, well, I feel I'm, I feel somebody wants me and who, yeah. who would want me more. And so, um, you know, so I ended up working at the Bass, which I had a spectacular time working at. And the Bass Museum is, um, it's, uh, historically it has an encyclopedic collection, kind of hodgepodge of mummies and European style paintings. But the program there was really rich with contemporary projects. And so that, that, 
that museum allowed me to sort of play around with contemporary art, design, fashion, architecture. And that's like your first real curatorial job, right? Yeah, I was like officially like, oh, I'm all grown up now. Like make a decent paycheck. Yeah, and in charge of exhibitions in a way that you probably didn't have. Yeah, in charge of exhibitions, managing managing the whole department. Yeah. And it was a boutique-sized museum and, you know, it was manageable, but it also gave me, you know, I think the fluidity to try new things out. It, it was partnered, it had par- it partnered with Art Basel. So every Art Basel, Miami beach, the park in front of the bass would be activated with public sculptures. Mm-hmm. I was the liaison between the museum and Art Basel. So I got a little bit of that experience, but I think it really just went back to sort of uh, my interest in working directly with artists, the studio, you know, dreaming a bit and then scaling it back to see what's possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, so you were at the Bass for um, about two and a half, three years. What was like the best show you worked on there? Well, the, I did a show called Gold, which was artists using gold, okay, either as a concept or or physically, right, as a material. Material. So I had everyone from like, um, oh my goodness, I can't even think. It had like Sylvie Fleury, Jim Hodges, who else? Um, I'm going blank. It had some local artists like Carlos Betancourt or Christina Lee Rodriguez. And what made that show stand out for you? Um, it was it was a show that um, it was a group show. It had twenty four artists. It was it stood out because of all the hard work, but it also was a show where I made every every decision. You know, um, mm. the director there had really mentored me and you know advised you know on certain choices and how how best to use the museum. But in the end, I was a decision maker. It was curated in house as opposed to maybe taking the show. You know, we we had we had we've had shows from other other museums come and, you know, I can act as organizing curator, but truly was a show that I had right, right. sort of worked on from you know, from soup to nuts. You know, it was it was yeah, I think it was fulfilling in that in that sense. And the the show actually traveled, so I went to the Newburger Museum and purchased New York, and that's the first time I had ever traveled a show. So you know, and there's you know. Yeah, I have a lot of fun memories about it, blood, sweat, and tears, you know, <laughs> that went into that. Yeah, and it just had a combination of different medium. It had digital art, it had film, it had sculpture, it had, um, you know, it had every sort of discipline represented, I think. And right, so right. For me, that was quite a challenge as opposed to like, oh, it's just a painting show or just right, a sculpture show. Right. And then, of course, with having associations to gold was really important for each work or the, right. the connecting thread to all the works. Right. And then at this point, what, how did your parents feel? Were they going to your shows? Um, how did you explain what your job was? Because that's, you know, I think that's always a funny thing. It's like, not only like, what does an artist do, but what does a curator do? Yeah, I think I think it wasn't until the last few years that my parents realized like what a curator does or yeah. what I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my mother actually came to the opening of Gold. Okay. And I, I think she she was proud. And I think I think she understood like, oh, I organized this exhibition you know, I selected all these things from the color of the wall to, you know, the artists to writing the text on the wall. Like it was my sort of idea concept and then executed into a final product. And so I think my mother got a sense of what I do and I don't think my father still knows what I do, but. Um, because you, he hasn't come or you haven't told them or. Uh, I'm trying to think if he, I don't think he's ever gone to any of my exhibitions. Oh. I think my parents, are, they live together. That. But, yeah. No, are they still in California? They are. I'm trying to think. No, no, maybe my parent. I think, no, I take that back. My father has been, in, he was at the Bass Museum. I just don't think he understands the art world. Mm. And now that I'm at the Warhol Museum, they know that 
you know, I, I work at a museum based off like inspired from like a dead famous person. <laughs> they know who Warhol is, right? Um, I don't think my dad knows who he is, but my mother certainly does. And she, my mother loves Frida Kahlo and mm-hmm. Dali. So she, even, even for the sake of a person with such a huge personality or at least a style to them, my mother knows um, the Warhol basics. Like right. All three of them are cancer. iconic in terms yeah, of history yeah. and pop culture. Yeah. My mother, my mother is very artsy. And so, uh, yeah, but I, and I send them my, um, my catalogs and newspaper clippings and they save them. And but I, I still think that they're never clear on what I do. completely. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. And then, so from the bass, you moved to the Warhol museum, right? What, ins- what inspired that change? I don't know if it was nothing. I don't, I don't think I was inspired to change. I was perfectly happy working at the bass. Uh-huh. Um, and I left behind a lot of great shows. Um, I know you, you, you told me about it when you first got here, all the shows that you wished you could have completed, right? Yeah. I sort of handed them over and they're all, they're all still happening, but, but yeah, I'm not involved. That's kind of disappointing. Yeah. Like Mika Rottenberg, Mika Rottenberg, um, um, the Haas brothers, Paula PV, Hugo um, Rodino, right? Oh yeah. Well, I worked, I had worked on that and then it launched, but then I wasn't part of that right, right. Of celebration of it, but publicly, I, yeah, I'm not involved, you know, but I had applied for the Warhol position. I came here, I came here as someone's guest for the 20th anniversary party gala. Okay. And so I got a sense of Pittsburgh and I came as a guest and I met, you know, the staff here. I met the former director who had hired me. Eric uh, Shiner. Eric Shiner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I had, so I came here for an event, whatever. I had a good time. And then I went back home, Miami, and then this job got posted and I applied for it and I interviewed for it and I got a job offer. And then I had to sort of ask myself, you know, do, do I want to leave Miami, which is, I consider my hometown, you know, my husband is an oceanographer and lives in Miami still to this day. So I had to decide, Oh, do I, do I, take this job? Do I see it as an opportunity? Does it matter? And, and also you're not, you weren't a Warhol scholar, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I didn't pretend to be, you know, I, I work with, you know, I work with material culture. I, I love, you know, contemporary art I, I art history, of course, is Warhol's part of that canon, but yeah. I, and it all just sort of, the pieces fell into place and I, I decided to, you know, pull the trigger and move. And unfortunately, Eric Shiner left two months into my job here. Yeah. So that left me a little bit, you know, frustrated, but then we got a new director, uh, Patrick Moore and uh, he's our, he's our director now and he's got a vision and he's, you know, really supportive of me. So, you know, since, so since his, you know, since his official sort of role as director, I, I got promoted. I've been managing the department. I'm working on my exhibitions, but also I'm supportive of all of my colleagues' projects yeah. and programs. So yeah, so it's been, it's been a... It's been a success story, and I'm really enjoying it here. What? How? How has Pittsburgh been different than Miami? You think? Well, I think they're well. They're they're very different cities. You know, Miami is. I guess a, it's it's a bigger. I think it's a bigger city, if I'm not mistaken. But it it's it's definitely more hustle bustle, stressful. Miami. It's a. I think. I think it's you know maybe a, a city that almost never sleeps, but the art, the art world is a bit more flashier there. Mm-hmm. Our artists are more connected in terms of having a network, having sort of options for, you know, collectors opportunities. But the one thing I see different in Pittsburgh is that it has this rich history of uh, museums. There's, there's a wonderful um, 
community of artists and makers. And then, of course, the cost of living is a lot cheaper. But then there's also the university structure here, which Miami didn't have. So, mm. you know, there's graduate programs for artists here. There's um, really strong, you know, academic programs, lectures, talks, etc. Pittsburgh is manageable as a city to navigate, but it also allows you to have, you know, a Monday through Friday, nine to five kind of lifestyle. Um, you mean and, like that Miami didn't allow you, like you work longer hours in Miami? I, I personally did. And I think that was just because of the association. It has close associations with New York city, mm. but I find, you know, yeah, I mean, there's like, there's, there's, there's tons of flights from Miami to New York, but there's also tons of flights from Pittsburgh to Pittsburgh to New York. So, um, yeah, so I mean, they're different, they're different in their own ways, but in, in good ways, I, I don't, I don't, for the things I don't like about Miami or don't like about Pittsburgh, it's not, I don't pit them against each right, other. Right. I actually think both communities are really um, wonderful for artists, but then there's challenges, of course, that go with living in either community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, and then you just recently got a fellow at the Center for Curatorial Leadership, mm-hmm. right? That's right. Yeah. So How's that going? What, what is that? I guess, what does that entail? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's the Center for Curatorial Leadership, which, um, I was part of the 2018 class. So we just finished, uh, the fellowship in, um, in May, we finished in Houston. Yeah. In Houston. The, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So the fellowship is, um, it takes on, I think about 12 curators a year and it's, uh, it's a program to encourage us and to help us uh, grow in our field, but also become future leaders. So whether that's becoming, you know, a curator to a chief curator or a chief curator to a director, this program gives you sort of the resources to grow. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, we, we took, then these, this is like curatorial boot camp. You know, we go for weeks at a time. We would, we would go to New York city, all the curators, and we were from all over from Des Moines, Bentonville, Arkansas, Los Angeles, you name it. We all go for this fellowship, but we're taking classes with, with uh, business schools like um, Columbia business school, Rice university, we are having um, nonstop sessions with other leaders in the field, um, whether it's the Ford Foundation or the Studio Museum. We're, but we're also doing um, courses on public speaking, on um, um, team leadership, on negotiating. We're learning finances, looking at you know financial statements. And you felt it was interesting because even as the chief curator at the Warhol, you felt like you didn't have those skills. Well, when I applied, you know, they asked me in the interview, they said, well, why now? Why do, why do you need this? Why not someone else? Yeah. And my answer was that, you know, I just became chief curator and I'm in over my head. I manage, I manage about five people and I need this. You know, I studied art history. I didn't study finance or business where I, I did, but I flunked. You flunked right? um, but also this is, you know, if there's going to be future leaders of color, these are resources that I can't afford to do on my own. I can't take a course on public speaking or I can't take a court, a business course or have a uh, life coach or, um, you <laughs> know, th- coach. this, this program also you shadow a, a director from another museum. Who'd you shadow? I shadowed a Klaus Bieschenbach at oh, PS1 MoMA. Yeah. How was that? It was good. Yeah. I think I was his first, but you know, I he's like a him. caricature to me cause I only see his Instagram feed and he's just yeah, like he's sort him of a, showing off. So I, I just don't know. Yeah, you know it was like a was, persona he's created. I think I was excited and terrified and, you know, but I think from that experience, you know, I shadowed him and my fellow peers also shadowed other directors, but it was to see sort of a day in the life of, 
but I did see like how the curators interacted with him, his curators. And they, you know, I saw him during, they, I was there during an install of like four shows. You'll see it. But and you know, what, that, so what was that like? Like how? Yeah, it was good. You know, PS1, um, I saw, I saw similar, you know, excite, excitement that I experienced here at the Warhol. And I saw similar challenges that they have that we have. Hmm whether it's for a program or a future exhibition, you know, I was hearing those conversations, you know, these are, this is all confidential, but, but yeah, I was, it gave, gave me sort of a access to, to look into another ex, uh, institution. But again, through this fellowship, it gave, as I said, it gave, it, gave, it gave me access, but also it helped me build my network. You know, I'm, I'm based here in Pittsburgh now. Do you think it's harder because of that? I don't think it's harder, but I think um, the Warhol name eclipses the museum you know people mm. know warhol people always confuse the foundation with the museum or people think that we're very wealthy because we own the rights to warhol which is not true right you have to actually contact the warhol any warhol foundation that's right and, and they of course fund lots of wonderful things but we have the collection we have warhol's collection which is established partly because of the foundation so anyways but for me i think it's really important to you know, be able to go to New York City or Houston or, you know, art fairs somewhere right, else right. Um, and represent the Warhol, but also look for, you know, interesting projects that might, might appeal to communities here, but also look for artists in Pittsburgh that might appeal to the Warhol Museum's audience, but also audiences that are in other cities, especially if a project, you know, can travel. Do you have anything planned for the future? Yeah, I'm, uh, last year I had an exhibition with an Iranian artist um, named Farhad Moshiri, and next October, not this October, but next year, I have uh, an exhibition titled Andy Warhol Revelation, and it's looking at Andy Warhol's religious side. And that's going to open here for our 25th anniversary. And then the year after that, I have an exhibition called Fantasy America, and that's a, that's a exhibition with emerging artists. And so it includes Nama Sabar, Kambui Olojime, Pacifico Solano, um, Nona Faustine, uh, and Chloe Weiss mm. and that exhibition uh, I had proposed over a year ago. And so I'm planning it now, but um, it takes a long time. It takes a long time. It's a group show, you know, and it's emerging artists. Uh, one of the nice things about this particular museum is that we show Warhol, but we're also able to work in contemporary and also in a range of contemporary. So, you know, we, sh we had an Ai Weiwei exhibition, for example, but who are those future Ai Weiwei's or who are, yeah, who yeah. are the future Warhols, you know? Yeah. And we don't have to necessarily show pop artists. Right, because right. Warhol, of course, was so um, multifaceted. He, mm -hmm. he, had some, he played in so many disciplines that it allows us to, you know, work with so many different types of artists right. from various genres. Right. Which is good. I mean, like, because I, I just visited the Clifford Still Museum. Mm, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that future because it seems so centered on Clifford Still that I'm curious how it might expand. Was you know? it strictly his, like, work? It's strictly his work. I mean, so he, he, his, he had, when he passed away, as I understand it, he said any city can have the rights and possession of all of the paintings yeah. that he owned yeah. as long as they agreed to build a museum that only houses his work. Yeah. You well, know? it's a tough one. I mean, he doesn't have the pizzazz that maybe Warhol does. Warhol or O'Keefe or Dali or yeah. Frida. I mean, you think of those figures that you don't yeah. think of Clifford still, I guess, but yeah, hopefully it does well. And we've been really lucky, you know, Warhol's still popular and whether but he wasn't always right. Yeah. And I think he was, you know, dependent on commercial work and, 
there's other pop artists and and I think whether you love or hate his work, you know, there's something to be said, you know, whether yeah, yeah. it's a soup can or a Marilyn, yeah. um, people have their opinions. And for us, I think it's been a success story that the museum's been able to um, have been around for almost 25 years and in Pittsburgh, not New York City. It's Warhol was a Pittsburgher and uh, and the collection is here and people, you know, come from all over the world just to visit us, whether it's to see the art or visit the archives. Yeah. So after having gone through all these different places, right, uh, California, Miami, Liverpool, back to Miami and Pittsburgh, how is, and then also doing the um, curatorial leadership program, how has your curatorial philosophy changed? Oh my goodness, that's a good question. Well, I, one thing one thing I think from my life experience is that I'm particularly interested in what I call secondary cities, you know, mm. it, it's not New York or LA, but or Chicago or Chicago. But then it's like, what are those cities that are just as vibrant, but smaller. And mm -hmm. as a younger person, I wanted to move to New York. I wanted to move to London. So did I. Yeah. I think most people do. <laughs> and, um, I never I, made it. Yeah. Well, neither did I. And, you know, I was, I realized, yeah, I, I loved living in Liverpool and I loved living in Miami and, you know, I'm, I'm loving my time in Pittsburgh because I feel these institutions play a bigger role. I mean, I think especially in our, in our current, our, in our current, um, period, our current time, um, museums are really important in terms of what we show in terms of our programming. So yeah, yeah, I think, I think for me, my philosophy is to really think about the institutions, the institutions role in, in that community. And for me, I find my, my role, I'm Latino, but, I think, I think there's a lot of, there's an expectation to be a certain ethnicity mm -hmm. and only, and specialize in that ethnicity. So it's like, oh, why would I show an Iranian artist? I'm not a Middle Eastern curator. Right. And I think with Warhol, with the Warhol Museum, I'm allowed to sort of, you know, branch out to, you know, to other, you know, parts of the world, which is really exciting. And I think for me, I think, you know, in terms of museum diversity, you know, I'm really conscious of, you know, Museums are trying to diversify staff, you know, create pipelines for, you know, young professionals in the, within the museum. And I think I'm, you know, for me, I'm always rethinking, you know, what we show here. I think it's hard, you know, between us and I guess whoever's listening this long to the podcast, it's, <laughs> it's harder for me to say yes to like a privileged white artist to have a solo show here when I know we can make a difference mm -hmm. to show a strong artist and maybe they're a person of color or they're, you know, on the periphery of society. Yeah. And we're a non-collecting museum. We collect Warhol, but we don't collect, you know, we don't collect your work. You did a project here, but it allows us to give you a platform, you know, so I, I'm more conscious of that now. So for me, it's, well, for me, it's easier to say no to like a privileged artist because I'm, I'm always looking like, oh, maybe this will be, this will be really important for Pittsburgh. And I always think of community, you know, you know, as a Latino person, I don't, feel as connected to a Latino community here in Pittsburgh. But as a queer person, there's yeah. a, a very large queer community. We even have a big pride. So I know we're, I know we're doing that programming. And so, you know, I think as I develop my role here at the Warhol, I'll be more conscious of, you know, who I am, but even contributing more to, I guess, the Latino and queer community in my own, in right, my right, own right, way. Right. I mean, yeah, it's funny because like the Latino community is, I remember I went to Patron for the first time a few weeks ago. Have you ever been to Patron? No, on the, on East, in East Liberty. Oh, isn't that like a chain restaurant? Yeah, but I went there and a lot of the 
patrons there were speaking Spanish. Oh, I didn't know that. Was, yeah. I didn't expect it because I expected it to be like sort of a Mad Max sort of place. Yeah. But I, I, I walked through and I sat down and all just going to my chair, I just heard a lot of Spanish speaking. Spoken. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I think of when I think of Pittsburgh's Latino community where we're not unified by neighborhood the way you are in Miami. Yeah. And so, and so that's just happens to be the case here, but I do know that there's a Latino population here. So yeah. it's nice. It's nice to know I can contribute, you know, to the community. But I also think my role here is important because as we diversify museums, you know, I want to have in the future, you know, junior colleagues that'll grow up to be, right. you know, people of color who are being who are, a role model, yeah. showing, showing the ropes, the showing next, how next, to do it. Yeah. And they'll be the next curators. They'll be the next directors. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So, and that excites me. I think that's really great because, you know, I, yeah, I, I think, um, I'm one of the few minorities in the museums. So I'm conscious of that, but you know, I want this to be as diverse as the Perez art museum or as the Brooklyn museum. And yeah. it's going to, and I'm, and we're, we're aware of this. And I think a lot of museums are aware of the, of this and, and I see a shift happening, shift happening. And I'm really excited about that. And, yeah, yeah. and I want to be a part of that. Yeah. You have anything else that you want to talk about that I miss? Uh, no, I think we're good. Unless you had any like last thoughts. Uh, I don't know. All right. Thank you so much, Jose. Yeah, thank you. All right. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziyuan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com. Dot com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.